Next time you're at a cocktail party with your friends who are physicians, ask them a really simple question, which is, what are the top three drugs you prescribe? And then ask them the question of, when was the last time you read the clinical trials for those drugs? And I'd be shocked if you ever get an answer that they've ever read them. Part of the disconnect there is, well, how do we fix the system when we already know that people aren't looking at the underlying data? And so our goal in life is to be able to answer that question of how do we get everyone to the most appropriate care uh, at the lowest price? And it should be clear to everybody that that's what just happened. Welcome to the Solving Healthcare podcast, where our mission is to promote companies that are positively disrupting the healthcare industry and either drive value by either improving health or lowering costs or both. Today, our guest is Pramod John, CEO of Vivio Health. Welcome to the show, Pramod. Michael, thank you very much for having us on your show today. It's my pleasure. I'm actually really excited about this dialogue because you, first and foremost, helped me and help my wife. And so I want to thank you for that. We'll get into that later, but I just wanted to make sure I said thank you for that. You're very welcome. And you know, the, the, the reason we exist is to help people both get them, as you brought up earlier, to better health care and to make sure that no one has to overpay for better health care. I'm blessed to have a forum like this because everybody I've talked to so far is worldly smarter than I am. So I appreciate your presence and uh, look forward to learning from you. Promote, can you tell us a little bit about Vivio Health and why you started it? Yeah, our, our focus is on the specialty drug markets. And specifically, the, the reason why we're focused on that is it's the fastest growing area of spend within healthcare. And it's very interesting because a lot of the new things that are coming to market in healthcare tend to be drug-related. Mm-hmm. Most of the new cures that we're talking about. And when you look at sort of medications and how we use medications, they, they're probably the most utilized mechanism in improving someone's either quality of life or, uh, you know, general health. And as, a, as a frequency, that's, that's the highest frequency thing. And you're not talking about specialty medications. You're talking about medications in general as the highest use for a cure. Is that correct? Correct. You know, in some way, shape, or form, right? That could range from a anti-cholesterol medication to a cure, genetic cure for cancer with a targeted, you know, oncology therapy. And of course, our area of focus is on the targeted oncology therapy side of things, which are, imagine all the very expensive medications. And today you see them on TV and uh, there's been a recent legislation that came out of the White House that we're going to have to start or we will be able to start seeing prices of some of these medications because often as consumers, we think, ah, maybe it's a couple hundred bucks or 300 bucks a month. And it turns out many of these medications are 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 a month per patient. Right, yeah. which are significantly more expensive. And there's some coming out now that have a price tags of seven hundred and fifty thousand to a million dollars. And so, yes, clearly specialty medications are driving a significant part of healthcare inflation. And what we're seeing now is that you know, well, I would say five, ten years ago, specialty medications were probably fifteen percent of the total pharmacy spend. And now it's 45 to 50% of the total spend and only going to occupy a greater proportion of that spend. So, Well, um, and, and Michael, it's not just a spend problem. It's a, when you look at many of these therapies, in our minds, when we see a therapy, we're assuming that we see a drug for cancer. At some point in our lives, we're thinking if we were afflicted by that, that, hey, this must be a cure. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're paying for many of these medications is that it solves my problem. Like, because that's our usual definition. We, we buy a car, we expect the car to start. We don't expect that we have to buy five cars because only one out of the five will most likely start at any given point in time. And we don't understand that in the drug therapy world, the way that drugs work are more like the example of having to buy five cars instead of one even though we think of drugs working sort of like the, hey, I go out and I turn the key and my car starts, but that's not how drug therapies work. Well, and you're talking about the approval process for a, either a class of, of medication or more precisely 
a particular specialty med. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so it's the approval process, you know, clearly of how does a drug get to market, but then once it's approved also, what should we expect? Mm-hmm. What should a physician expect? What should a patient expect? And okay. then, of course, what should we pay for? And I think mm-hmm. mo- most of us would agree we should pay for things that work, right? Yeah, versus things that don't work. When you say what a patient and physician should expect, can you expand a little bit on what that means? Because I, I know it's profound in the ultimate outcome for what you guys are trying to accomplish. Yeah, so here's a simple example. A simple example would be, again, let's go to the uh, simple example of someone has cancer, where it's a clear-cut case. Mm-hmm. In the case that we have cancer, right, we've only got one of two things that we can do. One is potentially cure the person, or the second is improve their life expectancy. Right. And even the cure, one would argue the real reason why we're doing it is because it improves your life expectancy. Right. And you're not going to die of that cancer, which is why we want to cure you. But imagine that today we have many, many, many oncology therapies on the market that have shown no evidence at all of improving life expectancy at all. Or your overall or what in, in, in medical parlance would be called overall survival rates. And we have people being put on medications for which there's no evidence that it actually improves overall survival. And so now imagine that you have cancer and you have a drug which you're hoping, right, is either going to cure what you have or if you can't cure it, at least increase your survival, right, how long you live. And it does neither. Most of us would probably look at that and say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Number one, why are you putting somebody on a therapy like that? And number two, why would we pay for a therapy like that? So generally, what, what do you receive to be the answers for that question? I mean, why would you put somebody on a medication that has no effective improvement or no outcome that improves the situation? Well, I mean, a couple of things going on here. One is that I think there's a, there's a, there's a line in the sand that often we're not open and honest about, which is, there's, you know, as a physician, here's how I can help you. Here's where I can't help you, right? And so most physicians, I mean, imagine... Put, put yourself in, this, in the shoe of a physician. Most of us don't want to be able to say, hey, we really can't help you. And by the way, whatever we're doing could have severe side effects and there's no evidence that it's going to help you. That's not a conversation that most of us want to have. We're all hopeful rather than hopeless in these situations. So we have a natural tendency to want to be hopeful mm-hmm. even when there is no hope. So that's just the natural, all of us are that way, right? But that has to be tempered by the, well, what about you know the side effects this is going to cause um, you know, for the person who's on these therapies. And then secondarily, but what about the hundreds of thousands of dollars? Now, imagine that, you know, when we talk about hundreds of thousands of dollars for therapy, often we're like, hey, but we want to provide that to the individual. But also imagine that, you know, one of our biggest debates is how we spend the money that we have. So imagine that when we spend $250,000 on a therapy that doesn't work, we're also preventing that $250,000 from being spent to find therapies that will work, right? Uh, yes, I understand. And, and, and uh, in terms of going back to a question that you started about essentially buying five cars for one, uh, were you talking about, like, I know you use Humira. Humira is a great example because that's the first or second most expensive drug and everybody that's listening to this as podcast drug, drug list. But are you talking about essentially taking the same medication and it's going to work better for some folks and others are going to receive the medication where it doesn't necessarily have any appreciable improvement. Yeah. So, I mean, again, that very interesting, you know, comment that you made about Humira. Humira is the biggest selling drug in all of history. It is the biggest selling drug in the United States on an annual basis. And today I just read a report from the NHS, which is the National Health Services of England. And remember, in other countries, they regulate prices of drug, mm-hmm. right? And they only cover certain drugs. So, you know, NHS is under no obligation to cover Humira or to pay what we pay for it. But even in England, guess what the, the drug that they spend the most money on annually is? It's Humira. Well. And so globally, this is an issue, right, for what a class of drugs that uh, Humira represents are called TNF inhibitors. And so they basically suppress your immune system in certain ways where imagine that you have an immune system that is more active in certain cases than it should be. And that's what a TNF inhibitor like Humira, and it's used for many things like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel diseases are some of the areas that you'll see a drug like Humira being used. And so 
most of us see commercials on TV with very happy people who are on cruise ships dancing and eating a lot, right? For these drug commercials and things, at least in the United States that we see. And we get the impression that if I'm suffering from any of these things that, hey, all I need to do is be on Humera and suddenly I'm going to be dancing on the cruise ship also, right? Well, here's where there's a disconnect between when you go back and ask the question of, well, how do we know Humera does something and what does it do? Well, that, let's go backwards a little and go back and ask the question of, well, that's the role of the FDA, generally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And here's where some of our misconceptions start. The FDA does not have any objective standards on efficacy. And again, we misuse the term efficacy all the time. Efficacy re- refers to the population response rate. So in this case, it would be the efficacy number response, you know, is related to the how many people out of 100 actually met the description of the drug working. It's not the description of the drug working. That's effectiveness or the endpoint in FDA nomenclature of a drug trial would be the description of, well, what does it mean for the drug to work? And we often use those two terms interchangeably, even though they mean two completely different things. And so if you were to step backwards and ask, all right, let's look at Humira and look at, well, what does it mean for the drug to work? Well, it turns out in about 50% of the population, that means if you took 100 people who were candidates to be on Humira, 50 of them would really not get any response to Humira at all. And if you broke that down further, you'd find about about 27 out of 100 would get what's called an ACR20 response. So that ACR20 response is the definition of the drug working. So now let's step back and ask, what's an ACR20? What does that mean? What that means is the American College of Rheumatology has about three different measurements that you can use to assess disease activity. And what this means is that using one of those metrics that you saw a 20% improvement in your symptoms. Now, if you were to go back and ask, well, does it cure my RA? And it's like, well, no. Does it necessarily prevent long-term effects? Well, no, not necessarily. That's not what the ACR20 measures. All the ACR20 measures is were you 20% better on, for example, the number of swollen joints that you have? So this would be akin to saying, you went and saw your rheumatologist. Your rheumatologist said, hey, you have 10 achy and swollen joints. I counted them. And a rheumatologist says, hey, I'm going to put you on this $70,000 a year drug called Humira, which also has side effects like lymphoma and other things. So it's not something that you want to take unless you have no other alternatives, right? And some, you wouldn't take it unless you showed some improvement. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, I mean, but the question is, what does improvement mean, right? right? right because right. improvement should mean that either you're going to live longer, your life expectancy, your bone degradation, you know, other things that are related to RA, for example, are arrested, right? right. Feeling better is not a clinical improvement right? And, and, and by the way, there's a very strong placebo effect that we see that often you find that even in the case of Humira and other drugs, many people will achieve the same benefit of improving by 20% just by injecting them with sugar water and not with actually injecting them with any drug. Right. And, and so part of the problem is that when we set the bar of saying ACR 20, which is a 20% improvement, that bar is so low that many people achieve that just by injecting themselves with sugar water. So are you saying in the FDA approval process for this particular drug, that standard is some level of improvement at the ACR 20 level? That's the, yeah, that, that was the basis of the FDA approval. Right. Okay. But and in, so ultimately, again, it's, it's, it's not saying that, you know, again, what we think of when we think of a drug working, right. especially a very expensive drug, all it means is you felt basically 20% better. I got you. Um, so in, in this case, I mean, I understand that there are there's some a certain percentage of folks will have a good to a great response. I guess what I would like to understand in terms of wrapping this up, why is that important to know in the dispensing of specialty medications? And what do you guys try to do with that to help make sure you get the right medication to the right person? Well, for one we make sure objectively that, for example, if we already know that 50% of the people won't achieve the description of the drug working, well, the first thing we'd want to know is we want to measure accurately to understand, are you one of the 50% that achieves at least some benefit, or are you part of the 50% that achieve no benefit? 
right? Because obviously, if you're the person who's on a drug that achieves no benefit, and we're paying $70,000 a year for this drug, along with subjecting you to side effects that are long-term not good for you, we would argue that that's probably bad for you, right? A bad place for you to be. So we don't want you to be in that situation because it's not benefiting you. And then in the case of the 50% who benefit, then a fair question would be to ask, well, there are some people in that 50%, 10% of them who get a great benefit. They get what's called an ACR 70. Mm -hmm. And the people who get an ACR 70, an ACR 70 versus 50 doesn't sound like a big difference, but it's an almost four times better response. These are the people who, you know, they couldn't walk and were in a wheelchair and suddenly magically can walk again. And I think most of us would agree, we want those people to be on drugs like this, right? There's no question about that. But it also raises a question of, well, how about the majority of people who get such a small response, we're not even quite sure the drug did anything for them. So in your, in your service, how are you different than a, than, a, than a pharmacy benefit manager? Are you saying that they're going to, out of 100 people that present, they're going to maybe approve more where there's no benefit? Or walk us through how your model is different in that, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, so the, the current model today is based on somebody must be managing this, right? right. So mm-hmm. the, think about the current pharmacy benefit manager, PBM, or medical carrier model, because you can get specialty drugs on both of them, both on your pharmacy benefit and on your medical benefit, right? Yeah. But the implicit assumption that we make is that somebody else must know and manages this, right? And as a result, you have a prior authorization process. And the prior authorization process, all you do is check boxes off. And as long as you check the right boxes, the drug gets approved, right? Right. No one is really asking the question of, well, how are we sure that this person is going to benefit from this to begin with, right? And then secondarily, how do we know that the person is benefiting from it, right? right? And so today's models really assume that, well, someone else must be doing it. Right, so it's it's outsourced to the physician. Now, the physicians often, you know, the physician sees a patient, even specialists see patients for ten minutes once a year. As you can imagine, they're not spending a lot of time and energy on an individual patient basis, and they don't spend a lot of time following up with the patient, right, to understand objectively are they benefiting from being on this drug or not. Yeah, and you call uh, the current approach like a travel agent approach. I'm assuming you're you're going to get to that as in terms of differentiating. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that is that with today's model, if you look at how pharmacy benefit managers work, they're, they're very similar to travel agents for, for, you know, when we think about travel agents from many years ago. Mm-hmm. For example, imagine that you call your travel agent up and say, hey, get me the best flight from point A to point B. We assume that the reason they're giving us a flight is because it's the best for us. Well, in retrospect, we found that, no, it wasn't the best for us. It was because that was the one that they benefited the most from, right? Right. And how would we know whether it was the best? Because we don't have any data. So imagine now that we have a very similar model that says the people who are buying and paying for these things have no visibility into what it is that they're buying and did they get what they got, right, what they paid for. In this case, it's someone in the middle saying, oh, we're looking out for you. And by the way, our model is, is built in a way that when drug prices go up, we make more money. And so that's one of the very important distinctions of travel agent models. As the cost of a flight goes up, the travel agent makes more money. And when we disintermediated all those industries, we said, well, no, we just go to Kayak. And Kayak publishes all the prices. And Kayak doesn't make more or less money depending on whether ticket prices go up. So they have no economic incentive to put you on a more expensive fare because they don't make any more money, right? In the same way, you can imagine a model in which, like our model, and and certainly there are others that have the model of saying, we get paid the same. It makes no difference to us whether the right drug is an expensive drug or a cheap drug or the price of drugs goes up. We don't make more by the cost of healthcare going up. So are you suggesting that in a traditional pharmacy benefit manager world, could be misaligned incentives that would necessitate maybe not having a great uh, PA process or less of a need to be stringent? Or are you just more saying that, hey, look, within the VVO model, you're paying us a, a flat fee and we're going to make sure we get the right medication to the right person? I think there's a little bit of both going on. One is obviously our commitment mm-hmm. is to always get to the 
most cost-effective medication that works for a patient, right? That's our commitment. It's, it's, it's focused on every individual patient. So our model is very different in that we evaluate every patient individually to assess where they are. No PBM or in the current model, they just assume somebody else has evaluated them, right? In our model, we ensure that we've evaluated every person and their data to understand where they should be and does it match, which is very different. But that being said, even beyond that, if you look at the current model, let me ask you a question. If Kayak owned American Airlines, okay, would you trust Kayak every time it told you to use American Airlines? Not necessarily, no. Would you feel comfortable that, hey, I wonder if they're not necessarily showing Southwest's prices because they own American Airlines. Imagine that would be a little conflicted there, right? Yeah, I think you were reading my mind. I was also thinking, well, maybe they just inflate Southwest Airlines price so they can magically be the lowest Lowest cost, right? So now imagine a world in which, ask yourself this, why do most of the pharmacy benefit managers also have their own pharmacies? Name how many of the major pharmacy benefit managers do not actually route people to their own pharmacies. That's a fair question. And there's, you know, within the pharmacy, the PBM world, there's plenty of other things that they do in terms of the NDC upcoding and that type of stuff. So I get well, I mean, put, put all those, I mean, besides all the different games that one could play, right? Yeah, yeah. Even, even if you were to just look, let's look at it from a macroeconomic business perspective, mm-hmm. right? Let's look at it from that perspective and just ask the question of just business conflict. If your goal in life is to say, I'm always going to ensure that the patient gets the right therapy, which means that, by the way, in that case, maybe even things like formularies don't work. If, if you're going to take that viewpoint and then take that a step further to say, and then we're always going to make sure it's the best supplier of something. Mm-hmm. How could the best supplier always be yourself? That's a great question. And uh, you can expand that into almost every area when, of health care when you talk about accountable care models and that, and that type of thing. So I understand I, where you're going. And that's where we've taken a slight bit of a deviation with the models to say our models, and we think the next generation of models, just not us, just, you know, not just us, should look different. And the, and the axes that they should look different are, for example, we don't own any services. So we don't have no conflict in sending people to our own services. On top of that, we look at something like a formulary. And we say, well, look at things like formularies. We don't have a formulary. Because at some point, we're trying to find the best drug and different people respond to different drugs. So even things like formularies to us don't make any sense out of the gate. It's always the how do we identify the best drug for each individual? And so we've broken many of these models, if you will, that we use today. Yeah, and typically I wait to the end to ask about how you make money, but I think it's important to insert here simply because without a formulary and without making a percentage of AWP, how do you guys make money? We charge a flat per person fee. And so it makes no difference to us. We don't get paid more or less, depending on whether it's an expensive medication that's used or a cheap medication that's used. And so as a result, we always look at how do we make sure that it's the right medication for the patient. There are cases in which we've suggested more expensive medications to physicians. And there are many cases in which we've suggested less expensive. It's always about what is the most cost-effective care for that patient. And then, you know, you brought up another very interesting thing that people aren't often aware of, which is the percent of something. That is a a big problem because you look at AWP-based guarantees, you look at discount guarantees, you look at risk-based models, and people don't realize that when you tie your compensation to the cost of goods, you've created an economically inflationary model in which everybody benefits from the cost of goods going up. And so you want to make sure that the compensation models are built in ways that the people who provide these services have no economic incentive in the price of something like a drug or a medical device or anything going up because they shouldn't profit from that. Yeah, I agree. You've effectively guaranteed that you're going to have a cost increase and you've guaranteed essentially that whatever deal you think you're getting, it's not necessarily going to be the best deal for you. 
Correct. So understanding, and I felt it was it was vital that we talk about the FDA approval process and some of the challenges that you have using Humira as a as a great example. Understanding how medications are procured right now, how does your model work? And so walk us through maybe using an individual or over overall. How does your process work? So we've taken a view that, hey, if we understood the fact that, hey, the FDA, what an approval means is very different from what we think. Mm -hmm. And we've also discovered that in general, physicians don't necessarily understand the details of an FDA approval too. I mean, here's a, here's a really interesting test that you can try or listeners could try with their friends. Next time you're at a cocktail party with your friends who are physicians, ask them a really simple question, which is, what are the top three drugs you prescribe? And then ask them the question of, when was the last time you read the clinical trials for those drugs? And I'd be shocked if you ever get an answer that they've ever read them. And so part of the disconnect there is, well, how do we fix the system when we already know that people aren't looking at the underlying data? So here's what we did. We said, well, okay, these are all specialty drugs. They're all going to require approval. And in this case, our program basically carves out all specialty out of both your pharmacy benefit and your medical benefit. And we put a stipulation in that if anybody needs any of these, and again, it's a small number of people, because remember, it's about 2% of a population that at any given point in time need a specialty drug. Their physicians or their providers have to call us or contact us. And when they contact us, we kick off what's called a therapy planning process, which is very different from your typical PA process. And our therapy planning process works in reverse of a PA process. I was going to say, promote one, one distinction is you had mentioned earlier about the uh, travel agency process of essentially just checking the boxes and experiences where physicians almost have a God mentality or because I said so mentality. How do you approach that physician relationship? And I, I as, as you talk about the story, I also want to make sure that from a physician to uh, regard you guys, how, how do they regard the relationship with you differently than a traditional PBM? Well, I think that in many ways, to be very honest, physicians don't often know the difference between anyone on the other side. To them, it's just some entity who's in their way of whatever they think appropriate care is, whether it's appropriate or not. Right. And so I think generally speaking, that's still the view of physicians. You know, that being said, on the other side, we obviously are trying to change that impression, right? And, and the, one of the bases for how we're trying to do that is that what we do is that instead of a prior authorization, typically, which is here's, here's a form, check off the right buttons, and as long as you check off the right things, drug appears. We've tried to change that conversation to say, all right, here's what we want from you, physician. We want the ICD-10 code of the diagnosis. We want what drug you're thinking of prescribing. And we want all the clinical data on the patient. We don't actually want you to interpret it for us. We just want you to give us the data. Okay. And then what we do is we look at the data to determine our own assessment of, well, what does the data look like? What does this data suggest? And then we take our assessment back and provide it back to the physician and say, here's our assessment based on the data you provided. And then here are what we recommend, you know, from a therapy perspective or here, the, you know, based on price, et cetera. And then the doctor is allowed to either agree or disagree with what we're suggesting. And if they agree, we're good to go. And if they disagree, then all we ask is, well, tell us where we were wrong in our assessment of the patient. What we're really trying to get to is the fact that all of us want to get to the question of this patient's data. That should be the basis of our common decision-making, whether it's us or the physician. And both of us can't look at the same data and come up with two completely different outputs, right? They've got to be the same if it's the same data. So what we're trying to do is collectively with us and the physician come to a common understanding of what that is and agree on what that is, and then agree on what the therapy is, and then agree on how we're going to evaluate whether the patient is successful or not. So everything is objective and spelled out. So in terms of the continuation, uh, member or the doctor calls, you have it, whether they believe it or not, you're using the data plus the patient information to essentially match the right drug for the right person. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. And here's, a, here's the additional caveat. Often, many of these drugs all of us know out of the gate that only, like the Humira example, only 50% of the people are going to respond, right? 
and we don't have any other data and the physician doesn't have any other data on understanding, well, is this patient going to be in the 50% that respond or going to be in the 50% that don't respond? No party knows that. So at that point in time, our goal is to figure out how quickly can we figure out for this patient which bin they're in. And then our goal becomes to identify as quickly as possible, are they in the bin of the 50% who are going to respond or are they in the bin of the 50% who didn't respond, right? And at, at that point, we want one way to think about this is how do we fail quickly if the patient's not going to respond to that therapy? In your uh, service model, you're not making sure that people fail quickly, but rather you're testing their environment. What, what are you doing that's different uh, to make sure that you've got the right person on the right meds? Well, I think it does boil down to testing. And it does boil down to, imagine that, remember, because therapies work probabilistically, right? And that, you know, in that example, 50% of the, that, that therapy is not going to work for 50% of the people. That person will fail on that therapy. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with the physician. It has nothing to do with the drug company. It just happens to be with the fact, because of their biology, they're not a responder. And there's nothing we can do to make them a responder. At that point, the best that we can do is identify that they're not a responder. And we want to be able to identify that as quickly as possible, which is why we put the measurements in place to understand the question of, are they a responder or not? Because if they're not a responder, it is not good for them to continue on a medication that has side effects for which they get no benefit. Understood. And so in terms of that measurement process, what do you, what do you typically see as a I don't know if you want to call it a failure rate or a success rate, but to me, that's a big point of distinction for what you guys do is, is that, I don't even know what you call it, but it would be more of a, is that a clinical program improvement or, or how would you categorize that? Yeah, we would, we would really call it outcomes improvement, right? Okay. Because at the end of the day, someone getting to the right outcome is what we're all targeted on and should be focused on. And this, for the first time, we can identify the, well, who's getting there and who's not getting there? Because, you know, someone who's on the wrong drug who's not getting there is just as bad of a problem that we want to solve as making sure that the person who benefits is on the right drug, right? Both of those are equally valuable. And so I want to make sure, because you, you talk about precision care, and I don't know that you said that earlier, but what we're talking about right now is what you guys call precision care. Is that correct? That's correct. Because it really is the question of how do we get the person to the optimal care as quickly as possible. That is the goal of what we talk about precision medicine. Now, we often link things like genetics to precision medicine. But, you know, even genetics, one could argue, only help us understand the predisposition of someone to the right therapies, right, or matching. The goal still is the match therapy at the end. And that's what our goal is. How do you build a care model? that gets people to the most cost-effective care as quickly as possible. Well, and I guess the question that I have in my mind or what I would expect the listeners would have is when you don't have a formulary, how can you drive savings? So, you know, a couple different ways. One is it turns out that our model, since it's transparent, we've been able to help all of our customers save money strictly on the acquisition because of our transparent model for acquisition. Secondarily, where we end up saving money for our customers typically ends up being by identifying, you know, most cost-effective therapy. So imagine a world which looks like this. It's really that if you took, take RA, for example, in the case of RA, what you're going to find is that 40% of the people roughly will respond better to a first-line therapy like methotrexate than they will a TNF inhibitor. So it's not a question of, hey, methotrexate or these first-line therapies cost less, right? That's, that's actually not the point. The point is that they will actually respond better to the less expensive medication. And so some set of the population will respond better to a TNF inhibitor and will not respond. Some set of the population will require both of those drugs to get an appropriate response. Some set of the population will not respond to any of those drugs and will require some other mechanism of action. So what you're really, at the end of the day, what you're trying to figure out is really, if I took 100 people, what's the most optimal way for me to figure out 
each person which drug or combination are they going to respond to, right? That's really what you're trying to get to. And so then if you step backwards and ask, well, how do we get there? Well, the only way to get there, since we don't know up front which person falls into each category, is to, is to think about what's the lowest cost, quickest test or experiment that we could do to identify which bin a person falls into, right? Mm-hmm. From that perspective, and, and in that case, I mean, let's, let's take a first-line therapy. In that case, your first-line therapy to identify the four out of the 10, you know, 10 or the 40 out of 100 in that population would be your lowest cost test, right? Because not only would you use the lowest cost in identifying from a testing perspective, you'd identify the six out of 10 and the four out of 10 as quickly as possible, right? At the lowest mm-hmm. cost. So that's how you would figure out, well, how do, we, how do we figure the four out of 10? Now we've got six out of 10 left. How do we figure out the roughly two to three out of 10 who are, who are the best candidates for TNF inhibitor? Exactly the same thing. What is the lowest cost TNF inhibitor, for example, that a person can try in this class to help us understand, are they a responder or not? Sure. So imagine that our model is really looking at what are the lowest costs, and, and there's no economic advantage to putting someone on a higher cost, say, TNF inhibitor versus a lower cost one when no party has any data that they're going to respond only to the higher cost one, right? So you'd always organize your quote unquote experiments by what is the lowest cost experiment that you can do. And promote, is it, is it safe to say, maybe not, but it sounds like you're really working to advocate on behalf of the physician and the patient to get it right. Absolutely. But it's just a question of how we understand for a population and what's the best way to get there. Yeah, and in, in the traditional model, it's it's much more confrontational that because you have, you can call it a misaligned incentive, or you can just have the fact that you have formulary that are those rules are put in place, and they could be an obstacle to getting the right care. And so, I'm curious, uh, it's totally sidebar conversation or sidebar event, but uh, will doctors realize that you are trying to advocate for them as well? And then, does the relationship change? That's our hope longer term, right? Our goal is not to add more work to a physician. Imagine that our goal in life is that imagine you're a physician and you have 10 minutes with your patient once a year and you have an electronic health record that's got reams of data. What are you going to do? Spend an hour before every patient going through to assess and understand where they are, right? As as a physician, you don't have time to do that anyway. So our goal is really to say, well, what if we could help each other out? Let us focus because we're paying for these therapies on the data collection, you know, these different aspects of it to understand, are they progressing? And let us help you deliver better care. That's our real goal, right? So in terms of the, the process itself of going to physician, pick up the phone, and I know we can't call it prior authorization, but in terms of the therapy, thera- the therapeutic guidance, was there a, a step along the way that, that we have missed because we talked about matching the therapy with the right person failing early with the lowest cost denominator first to the point where you get it right. Is that a pretty good description or depiction of the process itself? Definitely. The only adjunct to that would be then every step of the way, we're always asking the question of how do we improve further? So it's not a you're done. It's a, for example, if you're RA, if you have RA and you are now stable, for example, and you've been on a TNF inhibitor for two years, there have been studies that have been done outside of the U.S. that show that many people do just as well with lower doses of drugs or potentially for some people even getting them off of the drugs. Well, why would a patient want to be on a TNF inhibitor unless they needed to? So we also look at, are there ways that long-term things that we can do that improve the quality of their life and their costs and their exposure to these therapies unnecessarily. So we look at all of those things. So it's not a, it's, it's not a set and forget. It's a set and reevaluate constantly. In terms of that set and evaluate, do you have any measurement that you use internally to show that process? So as it turns out, the process for you know, this is not, there's no generalized formula, right? There's the generalized formula is, have we assessed someone and what's the frequency of that we reassess them, right? But the specifics of what that looks like is very specific to a disease. For example, RA, how you'd manage RA versus psoriasis, even though a person, you know, two people could be on exactly the same medication, the care 
pathway for those two things looks completely different on um, what kind of measurements you would use, the frequency of the measurements, et cetera, are completely, and set of drugs that you would use, even though you could be on the same drug at a given point in time, the world around those two things looks different. And so it really depends on what the specific disease that you have is and what the disease trajectory that, we, that you're on would determine the answers to the, for the specifics of what frequency, what drug are you on now, what stage are you at, et cetera. Okay, okay. And so the reason I ask is I, I want to transition to the, the money side of it because I can imagine if I'm listening to this thing, okay, we don't have a formulary. So how are we going to demonstrate savings in terms of bulk purchasing power? So could you walk us through what you typically experience? First of all, how you procure the drugs or the medications? And then from a rebate perspective, talk a little bit about that. And then what else you might have to secure savings that you traditionally don't see in a pharmacy benefit management world. All right. So, you know, obviously overall, everyone thinks that care is, is too expensive, not that we need to spend more on it, right? Yeah, so I appreciate right. that your question about the, well, how, does, how do you provide better care for less versus better care for more, right? And across our book of business last year, we saw an improvement in cost of, if you were to look at what were they buying before, and you know, this includes pretty much uh, m- most of the household names in the PBM and carrier industry that now we've carved out over the last few years. And so if you look across our book of business, we saw that compared to what they were purchasing at before, we saw a reduction in, in net acquisition cost by about 30%, just a little over 30%. And then we saw a further decrease in trend growth. These would be new prescriptions and growth, right, of about negative 18% across our book of business last year. I was going to ask what you meant by negative trend. Uh, Is that fewer people getting prescribed the medications or is that a reduction in cost? So it would be, no, that that would be a fewer people being prescribed potentially the wrong medications or fewer people being put on drugs that had no evidence that they were actually going to be helpful to the patient. Okay, so you took a snapshot of what happened in the prior year when they were not with you all for special for your specialty program, and you said, okay, what happened 12 months after that, and then 12 months after that? Exactly, and we measure all of those things. And so from our model perspective, again, we, we don't sell anything. We work with primarily two of the largest independents, Walgreens and Walmart, are the two specialty pharmacies primarily that we work with, and they, they don't have PBMs attached to them. And so, again, we have no relationship with them other than we send them scripts and they, they've got customized workflow and other things that we've implemented as part of how our process works. Okay. We've also gone, and, and again, our, our model is completely transparent and passed through. We've also done things like, for example, on the rebate question. We go out to rebate aggregators every year with the, here's our book of business, give us whatever the best is, and we pass that back 100% back to the customers. As a result, it turns out that most customers aren't getting back a lot of the rebates that they should be. And so often it isn't just the case. If you were to go back and ask, is the real issue that we're not big enough to get a better rebate? We find the real issue isn't that. The real issue is that they're just not passing back most of the rebate that's available to you. And so in our model, we pass that back 100%. And so as a result, when you include that, we also include things like manufacturer programs. We've got an innovative program. Our contracting and things look very different than a traditional PBM contract does on even things like what is the role of a manufacturer program and how does that integrate into what you're doing from a workflow perspective. All of those things are automatically integrated into our program. As a result, customers save a great deal of money just because of the way our purchasing program itself works. Can you talk a little bit about the manufacturer program? Put that in simple terms. Yeah, Um, so you've got, you know, like copay cards and other things that manufacturers offer. And so at some point, it's like, well, how do you integrate that in the design of your program, your contracting, and into the workflow at a pharmacy? And we've done all of those things to integrate those pieces in. There is some level of, believe it or not, complexity associated with Department of Labor regulations on the use of some of those things terms and conditions with manufacturers, and of course, how that relates back to your benefit design also. And so we've, we've sort of created a turnkey solution that manages all those issues so that that ends up lowering cost, if you will, to the companies who are paying for our services or paying for these drugs. And, 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 and because of how our model works, again, we make 
no money, as in we don't make less or more with any of these factors. All of it is 100% pass through. But that's not reliant on the member raising their hand or the patient raising their hand and saying, hey, I need to use this coupon. That's No, the whole program is integrated. So now contractually, there's the, yes, the member must raise the hand, but from a practical perspective, there's no hand raising, hand raise required because it's integrated into the workflow. I got you. So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier when we started this conversation about my wife, and, and you also mentioned about carving out, especially from both the medical side and the pharmacy side. And uh, just, I'll, I'll summarize real quick, but you know the story. My wife gets an injection once a month at an outpatient center, and that's $18,000 a month. And uh, we have to go to a, essentially a hospital where there's sick people. And because it's covered through the medical plan, there, there is no average wholesale price or AWP. It's really just based on what the insurance company can negotiate with that hospital in terms of their discounts, for lack of a better word. But running through your program essentially saved $150,000 per year. Now multiply that times 10 or 20 years for just my wife, and that's millions of dollars saved for her employer. Well, and, and, you know, the interesting thing to note there, obviously, is also clearly, I mean, that's a great example of what happens on the medical side, where there's even less visibility for most folks than even the pharmacy side, right? But really, if you were to step back, let's think about it slightly differently. What's the value that's being added in the markup by the hospital in the case of your wife? The drug was manufactured by a drug manufacturer. It was shipped to them. It comes in a, you know, in, a, in a vial. Somebody takes that vial, opens it up, and injects your wife. The cost of the drug in this case is, let's say that we could acquire it for $4,000 a month. And what we're really saying is that you paid a $14,000 markup for somebody taking a drug out of a vial, putting it into a syringe, and injecting your wife with it. Mm-hmm. Was there $14,000 of value that's being exchanged on a per case basis in that case? Or no. is the value closer to maybe 50 bucks, which is what you would pay for, you know, an injection if you were in a doctor's office, for example, or $100? Well, I tell people it's the same damn box. It's the right. same medication. The, the only difference is uh, through your program, you'll send somebody to us versus under the insurance program, we've got to go to an outpatient center where there's a bunch of sick people and we don't necessarily want to be. So there's less value to us by having to go to the hospital. Well, and not only that, it's that everybody's talking about value-based care, right? Mm -hmm. If we're going to get to value-based care, we can't continue to pay for non-value-based care, right? Right. Because as long as we keep saying that we're going to go ahead and pay you $14,000 to administer an injection, well, then most hospitals are going to be standing in line saying, where can I sign up to get $14,000 for an injection each time? That's just the administrative fees. We're not talking about the cost of the injection. I mean, the medicine, right? Just for the administration, if, if someone is going to pay me $14,000 for five minutes, well, most people are going to sign up for that, right? But right. that's not value-based care. And that, that keeps us from getting to doing the right thing because we keep paying for valueless care. I understand totally, and, and, and that gets to the question, of, in terms of carving out the specialty medications from the medical plan, that most, most folks don't realize how much money is going through the medical plan, because I think it's all through the pharmacy benefit manager, and it's, you know, they can complain about the PBM, not so much the medical plan. But bringing up the subject of carving out the specialty meds on the medical side, I've had people tell me that that's crazy because you're going to have massive disruption and you're going to have a bunch of people super upset because they got to go someplace else or it's, it's poorly coordinated. Can you walk us through how your model works and some level of assurance that, that it, it won't be mass chaos? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The way our model works is that one of the things that we've tried to do also is not just reduce the cost or make sure it's the right care. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do we make this easy for members. And so as a result, we have a concierge service that manages all of the back-end details. There's one number to call. A member doesn't have to deal with their own doctor's office coordination. All they do is call our concierge who manages all of the things for them. In the same way, if you're a patient who needs a say, an infusion that happens to be on the medical side, 
well, the same process works. Our therapy plan kicks in, planning process kicks in, and then we'll automatically also look at what is the most cost-effective way to get this medication. And in many cases, it could be, Michael, as you said, easy as you don't even have to go anywhere. It'll be brought to your house, right? But we look at all of those options automatically to look at, and you don't have to do anything as a member. We look at all of them in your geography. Where do you live? What are the local hospitals? What are the different choices that you have? What are the different price points? How should we break up the transaction? We do all the heavy lifting. And then the first thing we'll do is go back to your own provider and say, hey, we've done all the heavy lifting. We figured this out. This is what makes the most sense, right, uh, from an economic perspective. And then the provider, you know, at that point is free to accept whatever, you know, is really fair market value for that service. And often we find providers will say, okay, fine, right? Because we break up how the transaction is going to be. We pay them a fair share for whatever they did, right? Or whatever they're doing. And if a provider says no, then, you know, that, that really at that point is, is not us saying no as much as their employer saying that, hey, this is how we want the program rolled out. And at that point, if somebody says no, then we go back to the member with, here's what your provider said. Here are all the other options that we've already figured out for you. And you can always start with even calling your provider and asking them, hey, why are you not accepting a fair price for the service. And if they say no, then we're willing to pay them exactly what we'd pay everybody else, right? We're not willing to overpay them, but we're willing to pay them a fair price. And if they won't accept a fair price, then here are all the other alternatives that we've already figured out for you. And if you want any of them, you don't have to do anything. Just let us know. We'll take care of all the logistics for you. Oh, it's a fantastic service. So uh, a, we're wrapping up. I know you've, you've got to get on another call, but was there is there something that, that you... I've been wanting to share or a question that we haven't asked that you would really like to answer? You know, not really. I think the real focus, if there's one thing that we want people, listeners to understand is this is really about how do we get to the best care for people? And if we just keep writing checks for value less care, all we're doing is we're creating an environment in which we pay people more for value less care than we pay for value care. And we should be able to know and understand the difference between those two things. And it should be clear to everybody. And so our goal in life is to be able to answer that question of how do we get everyone to the most appropriate care uh, at the lowest price? And it should be clear to everybody that that's what just happened versus we're not quite sure what happened, right? Where there's no visibility into what's going on today. In closing, if, if somebody does want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? You can go to our website, viviohealth.com. It's got information on how to contact us. More details about our program you know, are, are available there. And then obviously, if anyone would like to reach out, they could always email me directly, promote, P-R-A-M-O-D at viviohealth.com. Promote, thank you so much for your time today. I always learn something every time I talk to you, and today's no exception. Thank you so much for your time today, and best of luck to you, sir. Thank you very much, Michael, for having us on the show. Really appreciate it and have a great day. You've just listened to the story about Vivio Health and what they can do to add value to your plan. It's an amazing program. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to call Promote directly. If you'd like to understand how this and other programs might fit into your overall benefit strategy and how we can add value to your employees and to your organization, Give us a call. I can be reached at 832-236-8966 or you can send me an email directly by clicking the link on this site. Thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to sharing more information with you next time.